From Fibush Media, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fibush, coming to you from the temporarily relocated Fibush Media World News Headquarters. We're in Toronto for Radio Days North America and expect some great interviews coming up soon on the podcast from all of the North American and international radio people who are gathered together for this first-of-its-kind convention. But in this episode of the podcast, we turn our attention about 400 miles to the east, to Massachusetts, where June 8th is induction night for this year's class of the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And one of the inductees this year is a very longtime friend of ours, Dr. Donna Helper, professor at Lesley University, radio historian extraordinaire. And oh yeah, by the way, if you didn't know, she was also the American programmer who first put the band Rush on American Airwaves, which is super appropriate considering we're bringing you this interview from Canada right now. I talked to Donna ahead of the NAB convention in Las Vegas in April. We brought you a shortened version of that uh, out in Vegas on Max Radio. But now, here's our entire conversation with Dr. Donna Halper in honor of her induction to the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. I was absolutely stunned. Okay, I mean, this is not one of those humble brags where it's like, oh, yes, you know, I'm just so stunned. I I really was. I mean, when I got the call, I was like, I thought they were pranking me. Okay, I really did. Because Arthur Katz, with whom I go back years in the music industry, um, I, and I'm like, you know, Arthur, come on. You know, really, he was like, no, no, I'm serious. I'm like, oh, so, you know, yeah, so that happened. I am. I am so impressed. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about some of what you're doing teaching, because one of the things that I'm really thinking about heading into this NAB is sort of what the future is for students today who are getting into this industry at such a different time from when you and I came into radio all these years ago where you just went into radio when you learned how to do maybe radio news or radio music. Uh, and I was talking to our, uh, our mutual friend, Valerie Geller, mm. and we were talking about how these days students have to know how to do everything. And you're actually interacting with them on a very regular basis. What do they ask you and what do you tell them? Well, first of all, there was a wonderful article, and I'm trying to remember where I read it. It may have been the Neiman Center, it may have been CJR, but real good article about the fact that given all of the news deserts out there, like all of the places that don't have a newspaper or that don't have a local radio station, student journalists are stepping up. Now, not all by themselves. I mean, obviously, with the supervision of a faculty member. But I mean, now is actually a great time to start looking at what's happening in your community that your local media, such as it is, aren't covering. I mean, if you are in one of those cities where it's like being voice tracked from 500 miles away, you might be doing a kindness and not just in terms of news. I mean, let's say that you've always wanted to be a DJ and you're having fun with Spotify and Pandora, but you'd really like to talk to people. Now's a great time to look at community radio, to look at podcasting, to look at the opportunities where you can create. And yeah, it's true. Everybody's got to do it all today. But you know what? To some degree, we had to do a lot of it ourselves back in the old days, too, okay? I mean, I'm thinking back to even in the 90s, which isn't really, you know, for someone like me, I mean, I'm 76, still young and cute, but I'm 76. 
But I, I can still remember even back in the 90s when you had journalists who were like, you know, carrying their own cameras and carrying their own audio and carrying this and carrying that. So, I mean, the idea that like, oh, my God, you'll have to do a whole bunch of things. Well, yeah, but that also gives you some control over how it turns out. And again, with the supervision of some people who know what they're doing like Dan Kennedy at Northeastern University, who is a very experienced journalist. And he has a bunch of students that are covering some really important stories. But whatever your tastes, whether you're into music, whether you're into sports, whether you're into news, there are opportunities. The difference, yeah, maybe you won't get on one of those giant corporate stations, but maybe you can create your own niche or niche if you prefer. Maybe you can create your own opening and just make a little bit of noise yourself in a good way by informing the public and by keeping the public up to date on things. So let's talk about those giant corporate stations and let's talk a little about music oh, radio. Oh, let's not. Oh, let's not. I want to know. I want to ask you because, I mean, the the... You know, if somebody says, what is Donna Helper's number one claim to fame? The answer even still is probably going to be you put Rush on U.S. radio at uh, at WMMS in Cleveland all those it years ago. It was not a corporate station. It right. was owned by Malwright, which owned, I think, like four stations. I mean, back in the day when there were still regulations about how many stations you could own, good times. And back when an independent record promoter or an independent program director or music director. When I say independent, I mean somebody that didn't have to report to 95,000 other people. Back when an independent-minded person could just hear a record and say, yeah, this is a really good song. I think we'll play this. I mean, when Bob Roper sent me that manila envelope, you know, with A&M of Canada on it, and I was able to play that record. And you know what? So was my boss, John Gorman. He picked records that he liked and he could play them. And so could Kid Leo. And so could Flash Ferrance and so on and so on. Matt the Cat, Betty Corbin, all of us could propose that we play X. And you don't have that as much today. Today, it's like, well, it goes in a meeting 500 miles from here, and somebody makes the decision based on a focus group. Now, love me some focus groups. Don't get me wrong. I have been in focus groups. There is nothing wrong with focus groups. I do have a PhD. I do know how to do research. But you know what? Sometimes it really is a matter of your gut feeling. Sometimes it really is a matter of, I think this song is a really good song. I don't have any testing to back that up. I just have the feeling that this is a good song and I'm going to take a chance. And if I'm wrong, well, I'm wrong and so be it. <laughs> there are a multitude of artists that I supported over the years that went absolutely nowhere. And there were others that I supported that went on to become big hits. Okay, I'm a music director back then. I was a music director for like, you know, 20 years. I think I was pretty good at it. But the reality is there's always some luck involved. Okay, like you do news. You can cover a story and think to yourself, people are going to be outraged about this. 
crickets, mm-hmm. not a sound. And you can do some other story where it's just some frivolous little kicker that you put on the air because, oh, God, we got 30 seconds to kill. So we'll put this on. And people are calling it like, how dare you know, they can't get away with. And you're just like, I hate my life. What is wrong with my life? So there's just no predicting. When I heard Rush, I would love to tell you that the heavens opened up and choirs of angels and a marching band what there really was, was me, a music director who loved Canadian music, hearing a song that I thought would resonate with the Cleveland audience. And I had the freedom to do that. Now, there was no guarantee it was going to resonate with the Cleveland audience. The Cleveland audience could have listened to it and said, "Eh, we don't think so. But in reality, they did listen to it. They were like, we want to hear it again. They started calling up. Yeah, at first they thought it was Led Zeppelin, but it doesn't matter. They liked the song. And because they liked the song, they wanted to hear it. They wanted to hear other songs on the album. But Scott, there was no guarantee that was going to happen. And I would be lying to you if I said that there was. I had a gut feeling. I went with it. Now, agreed, it was based on some experience as a music director. But still, we have all played songs that we thought were just awful, and they went to number one. And we've also played songs that we thought should have sold a million, and they were just what they used to call in the industry stiffs, okay? They just went nowhere. So knowing all of that, this is the fun of it. This is the adventure. I would hate to live in a world where everything is predicted, Mm -hmm. okay? I still love being a music director. I miss it every day of my life. I still love the opportunity of hearing a new song. But could I get it on a corporate station today? Could I discover Rush today? Nah, the whole industry has changed. And I'd be lying to you if I said I thought it has changed for the better. Now, does that mean I think it's hopeless? No, absolutely not. If I could go and speak at an NAB convention... I'm away this year because my husband has been ill. He's getting better. Thank you very much for everyone that got in touch. But my point is I'm not doing a lot of traveling this year. But I still believe in broadcasting. I still believe that radio can be a best friend. I still believe that radio can keep people entertained and informed better than just about anything. I still believe that. I hope you're right. I hope, and I'll bet you you still believe it too. I do. I worry, but I do. So, Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame. You talked a little bit about your reaction to being nominated. What about when you found out about the class that you're in? I mean, you're in there with one of my absolute all-time favorite radio storytellers, my former colleague Carl Stevens, and there are some other great names in there. I mean, what a what a class to be inducted. Carl is a legend. Mike Lynch. I like Mike Mm -hmm. Lynch. Yeah. Um, Do you know something? I was on the board of the mass broadcasters in the first few years of its inception, okay? And I know how we agonized with picking out the people that we wanted to nominate, that we wanted to induct. There are some really strong broadcasters in this area. And in my case, I'm getting the Pioneer Award. Because as as Peter Brown and I were discussing, um, he said, you know, there have always been 
a few people who kind of just don't fit in any category. It's like they weren't necessarily known for being a DJ. They may have been on the air. They weren't necessarily, you know, they weren't Larry Glick. You know what I mean? Um, there are some people that, yeah, you know, they were engineers. They worked behind this. You wouldn't have had the station on the air if it weren't for them. And yet if I said their name, the average person would be like, uh, what band is he in? <laughs> you know, like, who does she play with? Um, so he said, we needed to come up with an award that reflected, you know, the photographers, the editors, the behind the scenes people, and the media historians. Now, as it turns out, I was on the air for like two decades. I really was. Most of my being on the air was in other cities, but I was absolutely on the air in Boston. Yes, I was. The fact is though, that I wasn't as well known for my on the air work here as I was in New York and Washington and Cleveland. But what I became well known for here, in addition to championing Rush, was my research into the history of Boston radio and writing people back in who had been written out. I mean, I blogged this past week about Eunice Randall. I now, was just going to invoke her name? Yeah, yeah, when I went on the radio, when I first went on the radio and I became the first female DJ in the history of Northeastern University in October 1968, and somehow the Republic didn't fall, <laughs> it was a, but it was a four-year battle. And having been told repeatedly that girls couldn't be on the air, when I finally got on the air, the first thing I wanted to know was, I, so I was the first at Northeastern. I couldn't be the first in the world. And yet when I would look at history books, nothing. It was all just like, well, women were singers and receptionists. And I'm like, that can't be right. And there was like nobody of color. And I feel like that couldn't be right either. And I've always loved history. But when I went to school and perhaps when you did as well, they were still teaching, you know, the great man theory of history, which was history was about great white men and the wars that they fought. Now, I get nothing against great white men. I'm married to a great white man. He is wonderful. I love him to bits and pieces. But my point is, there are other people that did other stuff. Not everyone was David Sarnoff. Not everyone was Tesla. You know, not everyone was Fessenden. There Major Armstrong, don't people. forget Major Armstrong. Yeah. No, I would not forget him. Yeah. But I'm just saying, there were like five or six people, all from corporations, that got written up in the history books of broadcasting. Everybody else, not so much. So if you didn't work for a corporation, if you weren't RCA or GE or, you know, things like that, if you didn't work for a network like CBS, there was a really good chance that your sacred name was not going to be invoked. OK, even Eric Barno, and we all love him dearly, who wrote the definitive history, even he got caught up in that whole corporate thing because those were the people who opened their files to him. They're the ones that had files. And the idea that here in Boston, we had a station, 1XE WGI, that was one of the first stations in the United States, but because it went bankrupt in 1925 and was long since forgotten because it had no one to champion it, and when I found out about it, I was like, excuse me, we wouldn't have radio if it weren't for this station. Somebody needs to tell their story. 
And the same thing with Eunice. When I found out that they had had a woman on the air, possibly as early as 1919 after the war, but we can certainly place her in 1920. Okay. And she was on the air for the better part of five years. Okay. And then went into ham radio and then went into, you know, becoming a drafts person and a map maker and doing technical drawings for the New England Power Company and et cetera. But those five years, they weren't chopped liver. They were something. They set a path for other people to get into broadcasting, for other people who were not necessarily corporate, who were not necessarily guys. And I felt like someone needed to tell her story. And one of the happiest moments of my life as a media historian was inviting her niece, who had been so good to me and opened up her files, gave me her writings, gave me photographs, and begged me to tell her story. It's like, I've been trying for years to get someone to tell my aunt's story. I'm like, uh, problem solved. I'm going <laughs> to tell your aunt's story. Okay. And I was on the board when, of, of the mass broadcasters when I was able to nominate Eunice and agreed. Most people had never heard of her. And that's what a media historian does. And I was able to make the case that we wouldn't be here having this conversation if it weren't for people like Eunice Randall. And her niece was there the day that Eunice was posthumously wow. inducted. And I was like quelling from it. I mean, I was just, I had tears in my eyes. I'm serious. I only wish that I had known about Eunice when she was still alive. I would have liked to just bow before her and say, you know what? You created my industry. Thank you. It's amazing. You bring up Eric Barno and I, I, I cut my teeth on those books too. And I still have the three volumes set. And I'm not dissing him. I'm just have... saying that he was limited by the sources that he had today. We know that Okay, today we know that Gleason Archer was not the most accurate fellow in terms of the history that he wrote in 1938. When people write something 20 years after something happened, I don't care who they are. OK, you're going to forget stuff. You're going to take stuff third hand because somebody's cousin told you and so on and so on. And let's be honest. Back in those days, there was no digital anything. You summoned old microfilm. And if you couldn't find the old microfilm or even back further than that, if you couldn't find the old hard copies, you, it, those stories went untold. And as a result, the second wave of media historians and then the third wave, people like you and me, we're the folks that finally got down to, well, who were the people in mm -hmm. WBZ's original years? Who were the people that got written out? Who? I mean, did you know that WGI had one of the first African-American performers when, you know, when they had Charles Gilpin on the radio in April of 1922? I do and now because of you. John Shepard III had a whole bunch of folks from the cast of that Black musical Shuffle Along on the radio in August of 1922. Nobody knew those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, the people that heard them on the air knew them, but audio tape had not been invented. There was no technology for preserving it easily. And you were at the mercy of who 
kept the records and the files. And unfortunately, a lot of those early stations, they had no records, they had no files. If I hadn't come upon Eunice Randall's niece, and if she hadn't been a pack rat like I am and had a whole bunch of Eunice's stuff, I mean, I'm reading this over and I'm going, is there this much wonderfulness in the world? I mean, I had no idea. And okay, agreed. It was from her perspective. But it was a perspective that nobody else was talking about. And it well, just I led me to ask, hmm, I wonder who else got written out. I know what I'll do. I'll write them back in. And so, but, you know, there it is. I was going to say, too, in terms of Barno, that he came at this. I mean, we forget sometimes he came at this out of the advertising industry. Yep. Yep. And so there was also that strong bias towards commercial media there. Absolutely. But also that commercial bias to, let's be honest, people that looked like him. Mm -hmm. So it would not have occurred to Eric Barno. And I'm not saying he was stupid. He wasn't. I just, I was there in that era. I understand how a lot of people thought. It would not have occurred to him to ask, gee, I wonder if there were any black people on the radio in the 1930s. Yep. Hmm. Well, yeah, there was this one comedian. So there it is. Now I've written about a black person that was on the radio. Okay. But did you know, fun fact, did you know that there were guys in the black community in Kansas City, three of them, who were trying to put a black radio station on the air as early as 1930. And the uh, the Federal Radio Commission would not hear of it. 20 okay? years before KPRS and the yeah, Carter family. That's, that's yeah. exactly my point. So wow. if you're going to tell the story, you got to tell the whole story. That would be like saying, well, we're just going to write about Rush since the time they got on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Okay, but they were a bar band in Toronto, and that was part of their history. So if you're going to talk about radio, you got to talk about the people that tried to do X, and it didn't necessarily happen. You know, um, we talk about Marconi. Oh, my God, in 1901, he did such as it. Yeah, but in 1898, he tried, and it was a disaster. Nothing happened. He called in all the media because he was a master of promotion, called in all the media and, hey, I'm going to send a signal across the ocean. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Two more questions before I let you go. First question. I feel like I'm babbling in. Oh, you're not. I get excited about this stuff. I, I, I could sit here and listen to you for two more hours. But I promise. just want to say one thing. It is a joy to be honored for my work as a media historian. And if I were to say anything to younger people who are listening, please join me. There mm -hmm. are so many stories. Maybe you've got a grandma or a grandpa. Maybe you've got an uncle. Maybe you got a cousin who sang on the radio many years ago or who was on early television. Those things are gold to us because they're things that in many cases never made the newspapers, never made the magazines, and yet they happened. And it helps us to better understand our industry if we don't just know the successes, but if we know the people who are just like ordinary people just trying to have their 15 minutes of fame, and they deserve to be talked about too. My wife's grandmother, I don't know if you know this or not, she acted on WoWo in the early 1940s. Yep, absolutely. 
when she was in her 20s in Fort Wayne back in, back in the day. And thankfully, she lived to 102. She came to speak to the National Radio Club. We've got that whole story on tape, and I'm so glad we do. So two more questions for you. Only two. I charge extra. I would, you know, I, if I could afford it, I would go much longer, I promise. We'll catch up. We'll catch up again in June for the induction. So first question, if you would ask, I think either of us in, say, 2018 or 2019, is it going to be a big hoopla when radio turns 100? And of course, there's the whole argument of, okay, there were you know San Jose calling and everything else that happened before 1920. But, you know, I think either of us would have said, wow, the centennial of radio is going to be absolutely huge. Was it just the pandemic that made it kind of fizzle? Or do you think there was more to the celebration that really just kind of never took off? Well, here's my hot theory. Um, deregulation was very, very good to six giant conglomerates. It made some CEOs into billionaires. Now, don't get me wrong. I, you know, love me some capitalism. I I got a car payment due and I really want to be able to make that car payment. You know what I mean? So I'm fine about making money, but here's what I'm not fine about. There are large numbers of stations all over the country that are no longer live and local. There are large numbers of cities where there's no live DJ at all outside of maybe morning drive. So as the heritage stations went away, sold to big corporations who just got rid of the call letters, got rid of the heritage, couldn't have cared less. If we can't monetize it, what's the point? You had fewer and fewer and fewer people who are looking at this and going, oh my God, a hundred years, that's so cool. Instead, they were looking at, huh, how can I monetize this? Oh, I can't. Okay, next. So, And it, be, and it becomes a labor of love here in Rochester, absolutely. WHAM. Yep. One, of their, one of their production guys went absolutely. out and did this phenomenal podcast series, and he did it basically yep. all on his own. And I'm so glad he did it. Final question for you. I could tell you stories, but but that's one of the big reasons, I think, is because there are fewer and fewer and fewer people to whom the history of our industry matters because they're the 19th owner, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't have any buy-in. They don't have any investment. I mean, WBZ is one of the few, and KDKA and a few others, that still have their heritage call letters and that have been around since day one. Now, agreed, different owners, but I'm saying they're still to some degree live, to some degree local, and as a result, there's more of a buy-in to the importance of the event. But to most other cities, it's like radio. I'll say one thing very quick. Every year, I ask my students, how many of you listen to radio? And fewer and fewer hands go up. Now, I can give you tons of reasons why that might be so. That's a subject for another podcast. But all I can say is, until we turn radio back into something that is live, local, fun, entertaining, and useful, I don't think you're going to get a lot of people getting all excited over 100 years, 110, 120. We got to save our industry. It matters. We can't just give up on it. Agreed. So final question, what is Dr. Donna Halper working on right now? Oh, my God. I do too. Which day do you want to talk about? Um, I just 
had an article. I do a lot of writing for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. My expertise is in the Negro Leagues and also in sports writers and sportscasters because they were the people that kept us informed. So I do a lot of writing about them in a number of different cities. I just had a chapter published in a book about the New York Yankees, about baseball on the Yankees, baseball on the radio. Now I know what some people are thinking, but Donna, you're from Boston. <laughs> yeah, but I love radio. So I'm very happy to research how the games were delivered by radio and who delivered them. Because to this day, there are still some great radio broadcasters doing sports and sports talk, and I love to listen to them. So yeah, so I just did a couple more chapters for Sabre. I'm always doing stuff for Sabre. I'm working on a couple more freelance pieces about various and sundry topics. You know, I'm always finding interesting women who have been forgotten that I want to write about. I do speaking engagements. I'll come and Zoom in your city. Fine mm -hmm. with me. You know, I love giving talks about the history of broadcasting that are tailored to your city. I gave a talk for the uh, Antique Wireless Association about the how the hams created early radio and some early women in radio. I love doing stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always doing research and basically still working full time, still just trying to stay one step ahead of the hangman. Uh, cancer survivor for eight years. Happy to be alive. Thank you very much. And on June 8th, you'll take your rightful place in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that, that's that's just such a privilege. It really is. And as a friendly media historian, it is a joy to be recognized for the essential work that historians do, because we're the ones that tell the story. We're the ones that keep that story alive for the next generation. I'm looking forward to being there in Boston for the celebration. Well, I'm deeply grateful, and I hope other people will be there, too, because I'd hate to be by myself. Absolutely, Donna Halper. Always a joy to talk with you. Thanks for having me. My conversation with Dr. Donna Halper being inducted on June 8th into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame, receiving their Pioneer Award for all of her historical research. And there are some other great inductees at that ceremony as well. We're sorry we can't be in two places to be there for part of it. My former WBZ News colleague and poet laureate Carl Stevens is being inducted. Mike Lynch, the veteran of WCVB Channel 5's sports team. Pat Costa, the founder of Costa Eagle media in the Merrimack Valley, plus two posthumous inductees, Bill Shields from WBZ-TV. I worked with him back in the day at Channel 4 when I was on the radio side there, and photojournalist Thurman Toon from WHDH Channel 7 in Boston. Well, that is the Top of the Tower podcast for this week. As always, we are brought to you by our friends at Yellow Tech. Yellow Tech, makers of the IXM recording microphone that I'm using right now, the Mika mic arm and monitor mounting system, and so much more. You can find them online. Just look for Yellow Tech US. I'm Scott Feibusch. We'll be back with much more Top of the Tower podcast next week.